Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. I just looked at the headlines. The market's off a lot. I don't know that's terribly significant in terms of trying to figure out what's going on in the in the economy. I do think that the the situation with oil pricing and stocks that produce oil and gas pricing and stocks that produce gas and are all pretty positive. I think that the oil demand concerns relate primarily to China and lockdown. Oil supply is surprisingly resilient from Russia. The price of gasoline and diesel is much higher than it would other, would otherwise be at $100 or $105 wherever WTI is. Because refining spreads are running at uh, historically high levels. Crack spread, which is the amount of products you get out of a barrel of crude, will typically be $20 over price of crude, and it's probably $70 or $80. Some of that may be attributed to Russian refining being, you know, uh, products being turned away or moved a long distance to India or China or something rather than being used in Europe. But I think part of it is just uh, inventories being low and remaining low. Natural gas is interesting because we're in a month where you normally have lower gas prices uh, because you're coming out of winter and we haven't really started summer yet. But the... Um, Gas prices, natural gas prices are very high. Both markets are in significant backwardation in that you know, current price of 105 or 110 or whatnot for the price of oil is $70 in a couple of years. Current gas price, per month gas price is $7 and change. It's like $4 two years from now. So from an investment point of view, in terms of evaluating you know, an oil com- a producing a company producing oil or a company producing gas, you have to use the 24 prices. I mean, the current prices are terrific. Remember, though, that a lot of these companies have been hedging, selling oil forward or gas forward, so they're not enjoying all the uh, all the uplift in current prices. Most companies in the upstream business are swearing off hedging, running their debt down to practically nothing, and swearing not not to do any more hedging. The overall health of the energy business is good. There is some concern on demand on China, but the lockdown strategy that China uses for dealing with COVID is obviously huh, less less successful against the Omicron variants than, than the earlier variants because the Omicron variants are so much more transmissible. In terms of capital markets, I don't really think the stock market or the value of any particular stock or really consumer behavior, you know, whether to buy things that are discretionary or buy, you know, large items, large ticket items like uh, a car or a house. 
I don't think that's really impacted by the Fed funds rate. The a good predictor of what the Fed funds rate is what the two-year Treasury is trading for, and it's been three percent, two and a half percent, and I don't think that's what is causing us to have these days when the Dow Jones average goes off a thousand points. I think what has happened here is that we go all the way back to 2008 and in the in the fall, say the fourth quarter of 2008, uh, things changed completely unglued. You'll remember the uh, Lehman bankruptcy, Bear Stearns had bankrupt earlier. Looked well like EIG was uh, AIG, the uh, insurance company was going to have trouble rolling its debts. The Fed stepped in with and flooded the market with liquidity. Just we've talked about this before. The way that happens is the Fed uh, provides liquidity to the banking system by having banks who are reporting members come in with collateral. And the Fed buys the collateral from them. That, in effect, creates more liquidity in, in, in our economy. When they get into a situation like the fourth quarter of 08, uh, they will take people like AIG, which isn't you know, a reporting member, and they will, in effect, make that facility available to them. Also, for the bank, they say, you know, normal collateral is treasury bills. They'll say, you know, come in with your less attractive collateral. We'll take B-rated commercial paper. And so that's how the Fed kind of pumps up the liquidity. And the impact is that there's more money in the economy. And as the Fed buys these securities, the Fed balance sheet gets bigger. If we go all the way back to 08, Someone will have to check me on this, but I don't think the Fed balance sheet in uh, just before the fourth quarter of 08, I don't think it was more than about a trillion and a half dollars. There was a time during the Clinton administration when the U.S. government was actually running a surplus, and there was some concern that with the surplus, the Fed balance sheet would get small enough so it wouldn't be able to conduct open market operations. But that, that had all passed by the time we got to uh, the fourth quarter of 08. Fourth quarter of 08, George W. Bush was finishing up his term. Things really came unglued. I mean, in the capital markets in the fourth quarter of 08, there was a time when nobody would roll their overnight lending. And so the Fed had to step in. Now, when you do that, you bulk up the Fed balance sheet. And the Fed quite experienced at doing that. And that how we come through those periods so that we don't have, you know, runs on the bank and people, you know, the bank's not able to open their doors. I mean, that, that's, that's what the Federal Reserve was created to do. We had the worst recession since the 30, otherwise known as the Great Recession. The, the approximate cause of all that was way too much mortgage debt out there and mortgage debt that, that basically imploded to a very real extent. I mean, the progressive side of the political spectrum, this very severe recession was caused by the financial markets. And, you know, I suppose to a certain extent it was. Financial markets were enabled by the federal government with Fannie Mae and Jimmy Mae to try to 
provide more mortgage financing so more people could own their houses. And it just got out of hand when this recession resulted. It's very hard to come back from that recession, no matter you know what Obama became president, no matter what they did. They had a great deal of trouble getting the economy going again. And we went into a period of very low inflation where Fed was worried about deflation and the U.S. Treasury was worried about deflation. So the Fed and, and the, was trying to get inflation up to 2%. That was the history up until the pandemic. It, we, we just didn't have inflation. One of the things to try to get the economy, boost the economy up or get some inflation so we didn't have deflation, the Fed came up with this concept of uh, QE, a quantitative easing. A quantitative easing meant was a program, a regular program, buying every month treasury securities. They were generally it's about two-thirds treasury securities, one-third mortgage securities that adds money to the economy that try to create more growth, more jobs, and try to have percent inflation rather than deflation. So they discovered quantitative easing, and during that period, the Fed balance sheet advanced from, like, say, one and a half trillion to maybe four trillion or four and a half trillion. It really seemed to make that much difference. The economy was still pretty, pretty weak. When Donald J. Trump came into office, um, the economy did get better. Now, maybe this protracted period of trying to increase the amount of liquidity in China to have the Fed balance sheet. So maybe it, 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 it would have happened no matter who was present. But in the year prior to the COVID, the economy was setting records because inflation was still low um, and unemployment got very low, down around 3.5%. And then in, in January of really 2000, this virus appeared in China don't know whether it came from escape from an animal into human population or whether it was somehow a leak in Wuhan from uh, gain-of-function research that was going on there. Who knows? But anyway, it, it became and spread. Certainly, the Chinese probably sat on it for a while. Unlike other viruses, it, it wasn't as fatal. I mean, a, a decade earlier, you had SARS, SARS, you know, a third of the people who got it died. COVID wasn't as fatal, but certainly very transmissible. And you move ahead to March of 2000, when a lot of the people on the phone, New York residents, basically people abandoned New York. I mean, in the third or fourth week of March, people just moved out, went moved someplace else, went to stay with relatives or a country house or whatnot. And then offices emptied out. There was a near panic in the capital markets, and the Fed stepped in, and basically what they said, by that time, the Fed balance sheet was around, I think it gotten as high as $4.5 trillion, and then they did some quantitative tightening, so they got it down before. Basically, what the Fed said was, you know, like a famous Draghi comment about the euro, whatever it takes, and the stock market hit a low in March, and then just steadily marched up. 
Now, part of that, I suppose, was innovation and, you know, Zoom video and Peloton and, you know, uh, heavy use of streaming services and whatnot, a whole bunch of things adjusting for the fact that people weren't at work. But a lot of it was the Fed balance sheet going from $4 trillion to we were still adding to the Fed balance sheet January and February. The Fed balance sheet rate got to $9 trillion. Well, I guess we should have seen this coming. Certainly, we discussed it in these Wednesday calls. But as you go to reverse that, what are the implications going to be? I mean, we created, you know, this incredible strength in the stock market and in all asset prices. Are we, in effect, going to reverse the process when we take that Fed balance sheet from $9 trillion back to $4 trillion? Yeah, oh, maybe. I mean, the answer is nobody really knows. And, and we created this inflation. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, if the Fed had stopped adding to its balance sheet and buying $100 billion a month of, of, of treasuries, if they stopped that in, you know, a year ago, say in May or June of, of 21, we probably would have been better off if the Biden administration had not put in more spending, we probably would have been better off. With the, you know, to be fair to the people in the Biden administration and the Fed, how could they, you know, there is a case that how could you know that you're not going to have a relapse with other waves of, of COVID? And, and it is true that the U.S. economy did come back faster than Europe. But we began to have inflation. Now, you, if you get into July, August oh, 21, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, former chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jay Powell, the current chairman, came up with this concept that, that inflation was transitory under the theory that it was a comeback from the pandemic, supply chain issues had all those containers piling up in, in West Coast ports, and that it would pass including that energy prices would pass. Now, you could see the Ukraine invasion coming because through last summer, uh, through the fall, the Russian gas their gas company, was very slow to add to storage in Europe. Part of it was a struggle over the Nordstrom 2 pipeline, that whether the Germans would authorize it or authorize the use of it. Part of it was uh, Putin apparently had this plan and was quite open about the plan that he was going to somehow force the Ukraine to come back into alliance with the Russian Federation and to use military means if necessary. That gets us up to about the present. The stock market indexes are off, you know, 20% or 25%. I mean, this has been as significant a decline as we've seen. I mean, to a certain extent, it kind of mirrors, you know, when the pandemic came. So what do we do now? Is this the time if your favorite stock is Microsoft or you always want to own Apple or Amazon, you know, which is off about 20 or 30%, is this the time to buy Amazon? Mike and I talked this morning, and the answer is, who knows? And I, I think the problem is that it's downsizing of the balance sheet which the Fed really needs to do, especially with inflation running at 7 or 8%. No one knows. If there's, we, we don't have any experience. We have the 
inverse by the experience. We saw what happened when you took the balance sheet from four trillion to nine trillion, but you know, unwinding it, who knows? And we still don't know. When market commentators say, Oh, higher interest rates mean that growth stocks, you know, you have to put a higher discount rate on them. It's not really what's going on. I think what went on was there was so much liquidity in the market and there's so much use of exchange traded funds that the stocks that went up the most were the trillion dollar capitalization. So as you reverse this process, as people decide, institutions decide to take money out of equity and go to cash, they sell the ETFs. It's easier to sell an ETF than individual stock. An individual stock, you got to kind of make, make up your mind. You may have taxes to and whatnot. Much easier selling ETF. Well, the ETFs are what owns all the large cap stocks. So that's the process that's going on. Where it stops or where there's a, a bottom or an inflection point where you could say, well, I won't be able to buy it cheaper next month. That is an extremely difficult thing to undertake. Now, I've used way more than my allotment of time. So we're going to go over to Mike pretty quickly here and we may do an extra few minutes today. But one of the things Mike and I have come up with to try to have an assessment is to, to divide the companies we follow into about six or seven groups by industry. So, for example, in retail, Amazon, Walmart, Target, just got clobbered today, uh, Home Depot, Lowe's, in chips, you know, the familiar names, the Intel, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro Devices, Taiwan Semiconductor, in Software handling business, Microsoft, Salesforce, Snowflake, a new one that I service now, which I might just come up with that I wasn't aware of, and and probably have to spend time. U.S. business and all factors of our economy hugely dependent on storing a lot of data. Well, the most efficient way and the most secure way to store a lot of data is Amazon Web Services, Azure, Microsoft, the Google products. So. Um, I think that's what we're going to try to do is is get a better sense for what's going on and when to commit cash or, or swap from one stock to another by trying to compare the performance of these companies in, in these sectors. And with that, I apologize to Mike and everyone else for going on and thanking way more than my half of the 30 minutes, but over to Mike for commentary on my points. The biggest point that I think that I'd make is that when it comes to the consumer and retail spending and in general performance of stocks in general over the past couple of years is we, we saw a big pull forward in consumption or shift in consumption, right? People went to fewer restaurants, so they bought more stuff on Amazon or Shopify or, or what have you, that a lot of those companies seem to have made decisions as if those trends would continue. And now we're starting to see some of those trends shift back the other way. It, in a way, long-term, this is going to be a good buying opportunity at some point. But like Hunt says, if we do enter a recession, it could be like 12 to 18 months of, of relative pain. And maybe that just means the stock market goes sideways, maybe it goes down more, or maybe it rallies. It's, it, there's no real way to tell exactly when and what is going to happen. But what we can do is keep looking at the different businesses we like, and if we get comfortable with the valuation, maybe scale in 
when it comes to what when it comes to the consumer i've been tracking the u.s consumer credit and you see that consumer credit use specifically credit card use has gone up dramatically in the last couple of months and that's a little bit concerning because consumer debt levels got to historic lows uh during covid partly because people weren't spending as much so they had and we're getting some sort of stimulus payments in some cases. So I think there's a couple ways to read into it, but my belief is as long as we have this relatively strong job market, there's a lot of people sitting on the sidelines that could be working that aren't. So the likelihood that they come back, that actually helps boost consumer spending in the long term. So while the numbers that came out of Target Walmart and Amazon might not have been to everyone's satisfaction on the retail front. I think it's a representation of what consumers are dealing with on a day-to-day basis. And that's increased cost of everything and trying to conserve their budgets so that they don't spend beyond their means. So I think, you know, looking forward back to, back to Hunt's point that we want to look for companies that we think are going to be relatively resilient in an inflationary environment. And in general, some of the things are chip companies, certain software companies that sell B2B, um, and some of these cloud companies. Let me just lead in because we're going to spend more time in the next week or two, next week or two of Wednesday on the subject. But the one very cheap chip stock is Intel. And and Intel is doing a pain in its way of doing business that is a huge challenge. And whether or not they're able to pull it off is going to determine whether you have an investment that might go up two or three times as compared to an investment that just is soggy and you lose half your money. I mean, the, for a large company to be in that kind of a situation uh, with those kinds of, you know, up two or three times or down half a time down where you lose half your money, it's really quite remarkable. But what they are, what they're faced with in chips and, and that certainly affects NVIDIA and it affects, uh, affects it AMD, it, it, it affects everyone. And of course the big winner has been Taiwan Semiconductor because they're the place that make the chips, but the Apple's and the Amazon and the Googles are designing their own chips. I mean, I think that was why NVIDIA was so interested in ARM, who licenses a lot of the, uh, you know, the code that's used to make these chips. And, but Mike has a really interesting example of this that I think, uh, we'll close with today and then we'll get into this in, in more detail uh, next week. But go ahead, Mike, on the. Amazon chip or Amazon. Sure. So, so this is a handful of interviews with customers of AWS and some of them actually use Snowflake as well. So Amazon designed its own chip CPU. They are actually released the third generation. These interviews actually have to do with the second generation, but the customer explains by moving to Graviton 2, we saved money for the first eight months, meaning the AWS bill was lower because um, they realized about 27% cost savings. But as a result of freeing up that capital, they've just added 
more workloads and use cases specifically into Snowflake. So the way that corporates are thinking about this is yes, if I save some money here on maybe my actual compute cost by moving to an AWS Gravitron processor, which is 27% cheaper than the Intel x86, I guess it could be AMD x86 processor that they were previously using, then they can shift that spend into other sorts of compute. They obviously don't want to give up the budget in most cases and they get value out of it, which is probably the most important thing. The important piece here, and I think talked about it a little bit, is that x86 self is in a precarious position because Intel's not done a great job of working with the hyperscalers to design exactly what they want. You're actually seeing AMD win more x86 business from the hyperscalers because they've been more attuned to their actual need. So, you know, looking forward, I think that we want to keep watching what happens with AMD, or I'm sorry, with uh, with ARM processors, and they'll be coming out from multiple sources. Specifically, NVIDIA's got one coming out as well, so that will compete against the Gravitron two and three. So, x86 <laughs> again, back to Intel and the the things that are risky. Aside from building a new fab business, you also have potential implications of x86 no longer being the go-to for data center compute. Right. Something I didn't discuss with Mike this morning, and he'll probably be horrified, but we spent time prior week looking at batteries, and most of the battery technology is with two, or the advanced battery technology is with two Chinese companies, CATL and BYD. The question is, can you buy a Chinese company or can you own shares in a Chinese company or, you know, is the Communist Party in China just so concerned about losing their control over everything that any successful company, Alibaba, Tencent, what have you, is automatic, is vulnerable. And now CATL and BYD are a little different in that they're manufacturing things. But one of the, one of the really able entities in terms of utilizing batteries is Tesla of all people. Our Tesla's always been too expensive and the founder and the chief executive is nothing if not all over the map witness all the back and forth on Twitter. However, if you had to pick something that is U.S. based, not Chinese based, so you're a little, you're, you're significantly removed from influence by the, the communist, the Chinese communist party, Tesla, especially in a period where everything going down is probably should be on our watch list. Because uh, while they don't really make batteries, they do arrange for raw materials and they're sitting with factories now in not just their first factory in California, they have one in Austin, they have one outside of Shanghai, and they have one that's just recently opening in Germany in Berlin. If you're looking for expertise about how to 
make better batteries, how to arrange materials so that cost of batteries don't get away from you. Tesla's probably the best in the world at doing that by a wide margin. So don't everyone, don't anyone go out and buy Tesla because all of a sudden uh, Mike and Hunter talking about it as an alternative to ATL and BYD. But this is the kind of period where you can think outside the box a bit. And one of the things I will do and Mike will do is try to establish is there some level that Tesla, their capability so far, it turns from being a wildly overvalued company to something approaching a value stock. And with that, we've run through our time and not to brag with Mike in Northeast weather versus San Diego weather, but it couldn't be much nicer than this today. And then over the weekend, it's finally going to get into the 80s, not near the water, but upland. Very small portion of the Fridays, can we claim that our weather in the Northeast is better than it is in San Diego, but this may be one of those days. And with that, everyone stay healthy and we'll be on next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Mm-hmm.